not going to go. Next slide. Okay. We are on the second session of this series. The first session was by Pastor David Wong and was talking about obstacles along the way. And I think everybody remembers basically the statement he made that culture takes strategy for breakfast every single day, right? That's, that's the most famous statement that he made. People remember that statement. And now we are coming into the second session. We talk about the goals along the way. And I have a lot of things packed. So I'm going to jump over slides as we go about. So to compress it in time that you can absorb, we won't go through all the slides. So you will see me rushing through some of the slides. So we keep on the time schedule. They can have lunch. Uh, my slide set, please. We'll use this. Okay, great. This is session two. I'm going to jump right straight into what he said last time. I have finished the race. You know, he quoted from 2 Timothy 4, and he talked about, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. I'm going to start with that imagery where he left off. I have finished the race. To finish the race of this life on earth, life in the spirit, you need to know three things. The destination, you need to know the power source, your engine, and you need to know what obstacles are you running along the way. Those are three primary things you need to know. But there are two other things that you need to know. These are going to be covered today. Next week, we're going to cover the terrain in which you're running the race. It's not an even terrain. We think of our Christian life as a pirate affair, me and God alone. The terrain is a public square kind of terrain. And next week, we'll talk about our spiritual race in the public square. And then finally, we talk about, we may have an engine, but engine is useless without the fuel. So last week, we talked about the fuel to run this race well. So those are five things. Today, we'll concentrate on the destination, the engine, and some of the obstacles. That's all we're going to cover today. My best, one of my best friends since I was a teenager told me that those who aim to fail, fail to aim. And so to, as we start on this journey, this spiritual race towards the finishing of our life, we need to ask ourselves, what destination are we heading for? Otherwise, we can never go to the right destination. The worst thing is you run the race, you end up in the wrong place, you lose. So the first question I want to ask is, don't break it in groups of two. I'm going to give you a minute on your own. Think about in the spiritual race of yours on this life, what is your destination? And I don't say heaven. I'm talking about while you're on earth, okay? A minute to think through on your own. And if you have a palm and a pencil, write on your palm, just like what we do in high school, what I do in high school, right? What is your destiny? You must be aiming somewhere for your spiritual life. What is it? I'll give you a minute to think about it. And then I'll give you the answer. Okay, got it? Okay, got it. 
Don't have to tell each other what it is. Okay, let me give you, the Bible is full of clues. So I'm going to give you three sets of clues to look at the spiritual life, okay? The spirit-filled life is your spiritual life. That's a short form of about spirit-filled life. That's what we're talking about in the first month. Look at names. What does the Bible call you? Okay, look at names. What does the Bible call you? Every single epistle of Paul and Peter call you by the same name. What is your name? That's the first clue. The second clue is what is the first name of the third person of the Trinity? Okay, the third person of the Trinity, what is his first name? You got it? Right? You are called to be what? Saints, right? Throughout the, the New Testament, they are called the saints. That should give you a clue of what your destination is. You are called to be saints. And the Holy Spirit, the first name, is holy, the spirit of holiness. He's calling you into holiness. We are called to a destination of holiness. That's the first set of clues. But that's not the only set. The next clue is not a clue, it's very explicit. God tells you what is the purpose he founded the whole universe and saved you. He said that. Ephesians. Let's read that together. 1 verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, that we be blankety blank before him. What's blankety blank? What? Holy and blameless. Very good. You know your Bible well. So God is very explicit. This is why he called you in him, right? Not just he called you by your name, he called you to tell you what his purpose is. But that's clue and that's sharing. God finally come down and really mean business. He gave you four commands. Let's take a look at what those four commands are all about, okay? This is the four commands. Four times. Same command. All through scriptures, but different context. So you need to know the context to understand these commands. Exactly the same command. The first time it appears is Leviticus 11, okay? Let's read it. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. He command you, demand that you be holy, but what's the context? The context is when God brings the Israelite right out of Egypt. That's the beginning of their spiritual journey. So no matter how many years you're in Christ, right in the beginning in your spiritual journey, God is demanding that you be a holy person. You be a holy person. That's the first context. The second time God demands it, it's exactly the same, but different context now. Leviticus 19.2. Okay, let's read together. Speak to all the congregations of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I am the Lord God am holy. Okay, context. This is right before he introduced what your life should be like. You should respect your parents. You should keep the Sabbath. And right before that, God said you have to be holy. So holy follows a certain lifestyle. That's the second one. The third one, again, looks exactly identical, but different context again. Chapter 20. Consecrate yourself, for I am the Lord your God. 
And that, again, is a different context. He talk about staying away from mediums and evil spirits. In other words, when you are holy, you don't just follow a certain lifestyle, you stay away from certain things. Holiness has a positive and a negative aspect to it. Finally, the last one is the New Testament. Peter was quoting to his people about Leviticus. Let's read it. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it's written, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay? And for those of you who knows Peter, Peter was writing to a persecuted church. He's saying that even though you are persecuted, you need to stay your course to the very end. So holiness in this four commands starts from the very beginning when God delivered out of Egypt to the very end to the persecuted church. You stay your course, beginning to end your call to be a people of holiness. That is God's calling for your life. This is a command, not just a suggestion, not just a clue. What is holiness? I'm not going to ask you to share again, give you a minute to get a picture of holiness in your mind. Okay? Holiness seems like, like a halo. What is holiness? Get a picture in your mind. Spend a minute. What does holiness mean to you? It's very abstract. Okay, got it? I think I know what you will hint at, but let's see. Let's take two pictures. Two people that you are very familiar with. The first one is Moses. Just get a picture of holiness, okay? Well, you know in Moses' time, God visited Moses in the burning bush, and he said, this place is holy. Take off your sandals, it's holy ground. And whenever God confronts a person, sinfulness surfaces. Moses' response to God's holiness was things, a few things. I'm inferior. Who am I? He said. Then he said he's insecure. He said, but when I go to Egypt, they are going to ask me, what's your name? Then he said, I'm not able. I cannot lead these people. And because of this mindset of insecurity, inferiority, inability of himself, he started to be insubordinated, rebellious, send someone else, I would not go. When I for holiness confront a person, sinfulness surface. It has to be dealt with in order to be holy. And so God deals with Moses and ended up at the end, he become a consecrated person. In verse 20, he say, he will go, he was going to fulfill the task to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And that's the pattern. Holiness appears, sinfulness confronted, a man is consecrated to God's purpose. That is Moses. You take another person, Isaiah, it's the same thing will happen again. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I see God high and lifted up, holy. And all the seraphims and the angels were calling, holy, holy, holy. Holiness confronted man, and Isaiah's response is, woe am I. Right? I am unclean. I live among unclean people. Whenever holiness appears, sinfulness is confronted and is cleansed. The angel took a coal from the holy fire, touched his lips, and he was cleansed. And then he was commissioned and consecrated. Who will go for me? I will go for you. Holiness of God, 
sinfulness of man, consecration of the person. That's the picture of holiness in the Old Testament. In short, what I'm summarizing is, don't look at the verse again. It is holiness as a positive and a negative side to it. Holiness is not just running away from sin. If I don't sin, I'm holy. It's never just running away from sin. It is consecrated to God's purpose. There's a negative running away. There's a positive being dedicated to God. That two together come out holiness. But it's not just the action of running away from sin or the action of dedicated from God. It included a whole set of attitudes. And so in 1 Peter, it talked about a group of persecuted saints and he has this advice to them. He called them to holiness, verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Okay? So what he's talking about, you look back at the context, this is what the description Verse 13, he called them to be prepared, gird your lawns, be ready. He called them to have a sober attitude. Don't be drunk with wine, but be drunk with the Holy Spirit, be sober. He called them to set your eyes on the finish line, second coming of Christ. Don't, you will be able to get through this persecution. He said that you have to have values unlike the world, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. You see, it's not just moving away from sin or moving towards God. It involves both your inner motive and your inner attitude. That's what holiness is all about. It involves your whole being. It's a big thing. It is not just about running away from sin, which we often think what holiness is all about. It's much more than that. Now we know it's a very tall order. My friend who gave me the first quote gave me a second quote. He said, God's standards, high standard of holiness minus God's resources equals to great frustration. God's frustrated, you are frustrated, right? If you have the high calling of holiness and you have God's resources, you don't have God's resources, you are in great frustration. And so we need to go and talk about what is our power source? What is God's resource for me? And there are three identities. We're only going to talk about one today. If you really think about it, and that's when I sat under Pastor Isaac this morning, it just occurred to me, you have three identities, not one. And let me just briefly share what those three identities are. And then I'll come back to what I'm going to talk about today. You relate to the Father, Father God, as Father and Son. That's your one identity. You relate to the Father as Father and Son. That's different than other people. You relate to the Holy Spirit as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It means a different set of things. And you relate to Christ as being in Christ. Those are three different angles of relating to God that you never had before. And to be a holy person, we need to take into account all three angles, not just one. Today, we focus on just one angle, the engine the key foundational engine of running this race. Look back and remember. One minute, I'll give you one minute again. What's the biggest obstacle to you when you want to be holy? You all have strived and tried to be holy, okay? What is the one biggest obstacle that you usually struggle with? I'll give you a minute to think about it. No need for sharing. Got it? 
you all know, right? If you don't know, then you are not struggling with holiness, okay? You know everyone has an obstacle. Otherwise, you're already in heaven, perfect, right? To know the engine, you have to know your obstacle first. These are some of the comments I get back when I ask you what your obstacle is. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm only human. No one's perfect. Look at the pastor so-and-so. And it's not a typo. I meant so-and-so. Uh. Look at pastor so-and-so. He has pride. He gossips. Okay. You can imagine who so-and-so is. Like, okay. Everybody sins, more sins, we all sin. Eh? I, I talked to a Hong Kong brother, Hong Kong sister. He said, We Hong Kong people are like this, you know, we like to compare. It's no big deal, it's our culture. It's okay, we have pride. You know what these things are all talking about? They are just excuses. The problem when you make these statements, you are actually saying this Sin is too strong for me, I can't help it. That's actually what you're saying, right? You're saying, Sin is so powerful that I cannot help, but I sin. And we all, in our running of spiritual race, we have that issue of looking at sin and say, we are just grasshoppers in your sight. And that's a major, major issue. I'm going to introduce this guy to you. You know what he, what's his name is? <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Anyone know him personally? <laughs> if you saw his movie, you'd know him personally, right? Let me tell you something that he does, okay? He, before the South and the North in America went to civil war, he actually passed the Slavery Emancipation Act. That was before the war. In fact, that is a precursor to the war. And so, after he passed the act, which means all slaves are free, he walked down the street and he saw the slaves were still working as slaves for the slave master, fact of life. And he tapped some slaves on the shoulder and said, hey, don't you know the law? You are free men. You have been set free. You are no longer a slave. And the guy said, what are you talking about? That's all I know. I'm a slave. And nobody tell me anything new in the process, Okay. They had no idea of their new identity, that they are a free man. They don't know. They actually don't know. And so the first obstacle along the way in our spiritual race is there are, we are ignorant of a lot of things. But primarily, we are ignorant of three things. And so Paul, in chapter 6, 7, 8, particularly chapter 6, and that's what we'll focus on today, is saying that there are three things that you need to know that you don't know well, and you have to camp on it. In fact, 6, 7, and 8 is Paul's section on sanctification, how to be holy. That's what it's about. And we are talking about that in this sessions. I passed Isaac, and I was preaching on it, chapter 8, in the sermon, we are trying to pull together different concepts through an integrated approach. So he said, the first thing that you don't know is basically in verse three. Let's read it together to see if you know. Do you not know? So first question, to a modern man, baptism is a very archaic term. What does baptism mean, do you know? Uh, take away your idea of what you have gone through. I mean, I think all of you have gone through that. Don't, don't even think of that idea. What does baptism mean? Okay. In Paul's time, baptism means this. It's baptismal. 
It means dip, it means immerse, and you, yeah, you've gone through that in the water of baptism, but it is used to dictate garments, okay? Garments are dipped into dye. And so you take it in, put it into a dye, and you pull it out, it was white, now it's red, okay? You dip into dye, and it changes the identity of the garment. It was a white garment before, now it's a red garment. It's the coloring of garments. The identity of the cloth totally changes when it goes through the immersion process because it's a new identity when it comes out. Now red clothing, not white clothing. It's a total new identity. The key word behind baptism is identity. Okay? A Chinese preacher once put it this way. It's even better than the dye. He said that when you put sugar into tea, the sugar disappeared. What you have is sugar tea. And the sugar has now totally found a new identity in being sugar tea than being sugar. And so baptism is talking about the transformation of your old identity into new identity. And it's crucial because who you believe you t- yourself to be dictates how you live your life. Let me repeat. Who you believe that you are governs how you live your life. Self-image is critical in terms of our, ca- our carrying out of our behavior. You got the wrong self-image, you will live a very wrong life, a very different life, right or wrong life, okay? So baptism is talking about change of identity. We are baptized into Christ Jesus. But second thing, now I know that I changed my identity, but what did I change my identity into? And so, Verse 3, repeat, say that you are baptized into Christ. You change your identity into Christ, and you are baptized into his death. But what does that mean? This guy is a guy called George, I think it's Westcott, George W. And he was drafted to fight a war in which a lot of people die. They actually die. And he has seven kids. Basically, his best friend, Richard Pratt said to him, hey, you have seven kids. If you die in the war, they're all orphans. I am an old guy, much older than you. Why don't I go and fight for you in the war? And that way your life can be spared. And so Richard went out to fight. And of course, an old man going to war, he died. He took up George Westcott's ID paper and he went in to register. Back in those days, no photo, no nothing. So basically, nobody knows who you are. As long as you have the papers, you are the person. So he went in, he took up the identity of George and he went out to fight the war. And as a result of fighting the war, he was killed. And then the government found out of this. And so they tapped George on the shoulder and said, hey, you did not serve your country. Now it's your turn to come and fight the war. And so George trembly went to the registration line. When he got to the table, the person was looking at his record, say, hey, your record said that you have died. And so we cannot no longer draft you into this war. And so George walked out scot-free. You see, he has died, his identity has died in the person of Richard. And so the government has no rules, no authority that can touch him. And so being in Christ basically is talking about that. Can you read that? You can read that, okay? Let's read that together. 
was crucified with him, so that the body of him, not mean destroyed, but rendered ineffective, that's my words, that we should be no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. It's exactly like the government has no authority to touch Josh any longer. You live in a place where this used to be where the king was sin. Now sin, king sin, not king Saul, but king sin, has no authority to touch you any longer. That's the reality. When you are new identity, new papers, king sin cannot touch you at all. Martin Lloyd-Jones used this example once, okay? He said that basically there are two fields next to each other. There's sin field where the king is sin, and there's God's field where the king is God. But in between the two fields is a wall that goes all the way to heaven. Nobody can scale that wall to climb escape. But God was so good, and I am trapped in sin's field. My king is sin. He sent a helicopter over the wall, and he took me, and he hanged me, and he got me over to the other side. And basically, no matter what sin wants to do, I'm out of his reach. I'm out of his control. He calls to me. He seduces me, but he cannot overpower me. And that's the picture of when you're in Christ, you're in the helicopter that went over to the other side. Sin cannot touch you any longer. And that thing was driven home when I was in graduate school. I was in the School of Public Health, some of you know. I live with the Harvard Medical student. We live in the same dormitory. And there was this one guy from China, and this was back in 19... 79, all the way back then, okay? It's a different world back then. When I say in China, it's just a very different world back then in 1981. And I met him one day, we, we sat down and we chatted. He told me that he was rich in China. He was about my age, okay? He was rich in China. And uh, because of the Cultural Revolution, he lost everything. His parents um, got killed in the process, okay? And he hated the communists so much that he took a basketball. You know what he did, right? He jumped into the ocean, and he swam all the way to Hong Kong, and he made up a life. There were a number of people who did that back then, okay? He should. And when he got into Hong Kong, he was a political refugee. He was given new papers, and they shipped him to America. And no matter what China's record of him was, that he has ran away from the country, they cannot touch him at all. And that's really what we are. We're out of the rich of sin. And when I heard that, I see that's a perfect illustration that we are out of sin's rich. But that's not the only thing. There's a third thing that we need to know. First of all, we need to know that we are baptized new identity. Second of all, we are baptized in Christ into his death. Sin cannot touch me. Finally, this is what we need to know. Let's read verse four and verse five. We were buried with him through baptism in order that we have been united with him, certainly also be united with him in his resurrection, okay? You know, it's not just the fact that sin cannot touch you. You have a new life. My friend, a medical student in Harvard, he wants to be a new surgeon. He could never thought of that in China. But now in America, he has a new dream, a new life, a new hope, new identity. 
everything has changed. I'm going to show you something that's interesting. I want to call it grapes, but they are not grapes. They are lychee trees, okay? They are lychee. You love lychee more than you love grapes, right? In China, where the original lychee crop comes from, you have usually in each of the orchard, there is what's called a father tree. You know what a father tree is? They have lychee the size of a plum, okay? That's a father tree, right? But you also have a lot of trees that is having trees that are as tiny as a marble, right? You have those underperforming tree. And so the Chinese, the, the Chinese farmers learn something. If you want to help the weak tree, you cut off the branches of the weak tree, you graft it into the father tree, and voila, lo and behold, the weak branch actually produces plum-sized lychee in the process. You see, the only way you can produce beyond your wildest imagination or to have a new life beyond what you expected of your life is when you are united with Christ. And that's what the last words talk about. Once you are united with him, in his resurrection, then you can dream big dreams. You have a glorious future. The past life has nothing to compare with that. Don't be bound by that. Don't be bound by that, right? Lychee trees, glorious vines. Three things to know. Baptism means you have a new identity. Into his death means sins cannot touch you any longer. No matter how sin looks like gigantic, he's overrated. He cannot touch you. And finally, you can dream big dreams in God that you can't dream before. That is what in Christ means. There are a lot of other things, but that's the key concept of in Christ. So when we talk about in Christ, in Christ, that's the foundation, even before we talk about the temple of the Holy Spirit and being sons of God. That comes in Romans 8. If you don't understand in Christ, you cannot move to the other two analogies. But the problem is there's still a problem. The problem is still back. Let's go back to Abraham Lincoln's time. So after Abraham sent out a propaganda group and informed all the slaves, hey, there's a new law. Even though you can't read, we promise you, you are freed from your slave master. They can't touch you, okay? He walked down the street and he see the same slave guy. You know what he did? He's back in the same garden, plowing the same plant. And, the guy, and Abraham Lincoln in the temple said, what? I already taught you. You know already, but how come you're still doing exactly the same thing? And the guy said, you know, hey, I was born a slave. My whole image was a slave. That's my self-image. I have nothing better to go on. You tell me that I'm free. Hey, this guy, he flexes his muscle. He has chains, he has whips. He's so strong. I can't help but go back to him. And that's our life, right? A lot of times, we, it's not that we don't know that we are in Christ, that sin cannot touch us. But somehow we drift back. Sin calls <laughs> over the wall. And we slowly float back over the wall, back into sin, right? We, so Paul doesn't stop with knowing the three no's. He went to the next thing. He said, can't. Can't. You know, can't, from chapter one of 
Romans, all the way down to here. This is the first command. In the book of Romans, this is the first imperative you count. You see, Paul only gives commands after you know the background. He informed and then he gave the imperative count. In the Roman and Greek world at that time, they're not very exact in a lot of things. You look at the maps. The maps are not drawn to scale. It's inaccurate. You look at the portrait. The portrait beautifies the person. It's not exactly what you look like. You look at the mirror. You have no idea what you look like because they are bronze mirror, right? Nothing is exact except when it comes to money. <laughs> I need to pay tax. And when it comes to military, how many armies do you have, soldiers? Those two things they know. And so the word count comes in. It's an exact word in an inexact world, only used to the most important things, count. Count it as a fact. If you fail to count, you will lose in a battle. If you fail to count, you go bankrupt as a government. You have to count, an accounting word. And this is why he says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but life to God in Christ Jesus. You don't just know you need to have faith and believe in that. You need to have faith and belief. Because if you just know after this lecture, you go out for God. You have to drill it into your heart and your mind. And you have to trust that what God said in His Word is real. Otherwise, you have no engine and no foundation. And when sin calls to you seductively, you go back to Him. Because the foundation of a spiritual life is not laid. How do you lay it? You can't, by faith, you're convinced that that is true. No matter what you feel, no matter what it seems like, you count it as a fact. Like the law of gravity. You don't jump out this window because you believe the law of gravity. You sat on this chair because you believe it can hold you up, even though you haven't tested it. And so you can't, you're out of sin's reach. You can't that you can live for God. Can't it. By faith, we walk that journey. Otherwise, we cannot walk. Every morning, say to yourself, I am in Christ. Sin, you can't touch me. Every night, say to yourself, I am in Christ. I live for God, right? Believe in it. Remind yourself of it. Count it as a fact. Otherwise, you can't fight. We have to fight the seeds of doubt. But even then, you still have some issues. So finally, Paul talked about sometimes we willfully sin, right? We willfully sin. It's not that we think sin is powerful. The Bible talks about the pleasures of sin. Sinning, if you're honest to yourself, there's pleasure to it, right? How many think that sinning has no pleasure to it? Raise your hand. Right? There's pleasures to sin. We sin not because we just have to. We sin because we want to. And so when sin calls to you from his field, sin's field, come back. You're missing all this fun and games. You still, you want to drift back. And so finally, Paul issued his second command. And the second command is offer. Offer. Don't just count. You have to offer. Off is interesting. You read this verse. Let's read that together anyway. 6.16. Don't you know when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, 
you are slaves to whether you are slaves to sin. Okay. Let me see. You know what the awful word means? It talks about, you take a look at that word, you kind of already guess. You're given a choice, seems like. What do you mean there's a choice? Because back in those days, in, the, in Paul's time, there are two types of slavery system. The first type of slavery system is that you are conquest of war. So Paul, you know, the Roman general leads triumph, you know, all these captives. And the captives, they're captive in war, become slaves to the other Romans, okay? That's something that you, 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 you just, you know, you got, you got conquered in war, you become slave. But there's a second type of slavery system. The second type of slavery system is for whatever reason, a lot of times out of poverty, you sell yourself to the slave master and then you become slave. It's called voluntary slave. And so Paul was addressing that you have a choice. You can sell yourself to someone as slave. That's the voluntary slave system. But at the same time, a voluntary slavery system is a permanent system. That means once you sow yourself, you can't get free. You're stuck. Okay? It's a permanent decision. Once you sell, you're done for free. And so in that light, Paul used the word offer. Okay, let's take a look. Verse 13, let's read it together. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, reckon, count, okay? And offer the parts of your body to him as instrument of righteousness. You see, the second command of offer, comes after the first command of Kang. If you haven't Kang, you don't trust that you are in God's country, you cannot offer. Let me repeat. If you don't know, you cannot count. If you don't count, you cannot offer. It's always in those steps. But once you count, you need to offer. There's a story, short story about a Chinaman who became to Christ during Hudson Taylor's time. So he became a Christian. He's in God's country. He knows that. Hassan Taylor teaches to exchange life a lot, and he used a title, there's an essay, go to Google it on, the, on, on Google, The Exchange Life, six pages, it's a really well-written book about going to God's country. So he taught him, and he knows. So he's going down the harbor, and suddenly there were three persons at a mahjong table. And, and you are the fourth one, come in. We are big stakeholders, well, you're gonna win a lot of money before you leave. The guy said, cannot. I have left my hand somewhere else. So the other three gamblers look at him and say, hey, what do you mean? What was wrong with hand? Is it chopped off by the emperor? Say, no. It has been offered to Jesus. Okay? My hands are no longer mine. I cannot go on the mahjong table to go high stick gambling with you any longer. Offer is a choice. It is to offer myself into a new life with God. Because if you don't offer, you tend to drift off to the other side. You know, who wants to be slavery to sin? I'm sure if you are insane, you will say yes. But all of you look very sane here, so you will say, no, I don't want to be slave of sin, right? Nobody wants to be slave of sin, right? Who wants to be consecrated to God? Raise your hand. Who wants to be consecrated to God? Okay, let's keep the hand high. Let's, let's see a show of hands. How many of you want to be considered to God? All those, okay. 
Who wants to be slave of sin? Raise your hand too. Who are slaves of sin? Raise your hand. Okay. Let me say this. Remember the analogy of the two fields with a high wall in it? You cannot sit on that wall. Most of you, you don't raise your hand. Now, I don't know what's going on in your mind now. You just want to give me a hard time, and you're giving me a hard time, okay? But if that not raising a hand is true on both counts, then you're straddling the wall. You cannot straddle a high wall for a long time. Most likely, you will fall back into sin. And that's what happened to a lot of us. We know we can't, lovely to have great, glorious future, lovely to stay away from sin, but I'm not willing to commit. I'm not willing to offer. And when you're not willing to offer that one slavery permanent offering to God, you will face sin in your life because a sin caused seductively. You remember, ah, it feels so good. All the garlic in Egypt is so nice. I'll go back to Egypt. No, can't. What? What's the last one? Offer. You have to offer. If you don't offer, the journey is a failed from the very beginning. So we go back to the beginning of what we talk about. We are on a journey. Our destination is holiness. Just remember, come back to when we talk about spiritual life, we're not talking about power, though that's part of the spiritual life. We're not talking about performance, although that's part of the spiritual life. We're not even just talking about moral purity, that's part of the spiritual life. We're not even talking about just prayer, communication with God. That's part. It is about much bigger than that. It's holiness. And whenever you just focus on one aspect, you go to the wrong destination. It is about holiness. It is about positive holiness. It's about negative holiness. It's about outward holiness. It's about inward my heart holiness. Our enemies are ignorance, doubts, and willful sinning. And the only way out is that we know we have a new identity in Christ. You know, we talk a lot in psychology. It's very popular nowadays. My wife is a counselor. We talk about family of origin. You know, which family you come from affect the way that you live. If you are born a slave, it's very hard for you to to throw off your slave. If your family of origin is slavery, it's very hard to become a free man. If you are born in a king's family, hey, it's very hard for you to become a slave. Who you are dictates what you do. It dictates your destination. And so Paul concluded this: You were in Adam. That's your identity. You know nothing better. Your family of your origin is Adam. You were born slave of sin. You know not better. But now, when you are baptized, now you know what baptism means, right? Baptism is changing your identity. When you are baptized, you are in Christ. You are. Sin cannot touch you. You have a new purpose, new glory. Offer yourself to God to live a new life and have a victorious Christian life. I've said in the beginning there are three identities. Today we just cover one. Last week I covered the temple of the Holy Spirit, and this morning Pastor Isaac covered being the sons of the Father. Those are three different identities that we have 
as a new Christian. They overlap quite a bit. But what I'm saying is, Pastor Isaac and I did not talk about what we're going to talk about. It just happened we covered all three identities by the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And may you truly live as sons of the King in the image in Christ and behave like the temple of the Holy Spirit. May God bless you. And walk, run a glorious race for God. Don't sit on the fence. That's the worst place to be. You know why? You fell down. It's no fun. (laughs) 